Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let's take our Bibles now and turn to Romans chapter 12. Would you turn there with me? We're reading from, was from there earlier, Romans chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 3 through 8 today. As many of you know, I grew up in central Indiana. And so growing up in central Indiana, Memorial Day was a very big thing, a very big thing. If you know anything about uh, central Indiana, at the end of May, there's a little race. <laughs> it's called the Indianapolis 500. <laughs> and it takes them an entire month to get ready for that. <laughs> time trials, and it all builds up to the race, and I remember when I was a child that the race was always on Memorial Day before uh, the heathen takeover of that race. <laughs> but the biggest thing I remember about Memorial Day in a small town that Susan and I grew up in was the Memorial Day Parade. How many of you in the community where you grew up, that was a big thing? Did you raise your hand? Memorial Day Parade? Okay. It was very significant. And I remember every Memorial Day, uh, just about, we would go downtown around the town square, stand several deep on the sidewalks in order to watch the parade. And I don't know if it was much of a parade, but it seemed like a big thing when you're a little boy. And so there were some homemade floats that would come by. I'm sure they're quite tacky by today's standards, but we thought they were really something. 4-H displays, high school band. But my favorite part was when the veterans would march by in groups. I can remember just as a small boy seeing some very young men who had recently enlisted, been through training, many of them on to a place, headed to a place I'd never heard of called Vietnam. They were marching through. Then following them would be some men who probably were in their early 30s at that time. And those were the Korean War veterans. And then after them would come just line after line of men who were in their 40s, I would say, most of them. Those were the World War II veterans. And then I can distinctly remember smaller group, not with as powerful a stride, some of them wearing what seemed to be old-fashioned uniforms with the leggings. They came marching by, most of them in their 60s and 70s. Those were the World War I veterans. Now, I'm grateful I saw this. I'm 
almost ashamed to say I can remember it. But there were a few vehicles that came by with some men who couldn't march anymore. And they would be sitting in the back seat of those vehicles. And those, not many of them, but those were the veterans of the Spanish-American War. <laughs> now, when you're old enough to remember veterans of the Spanish-American War, <laughs> do the math all you want. <laughs> you're old. <laughs> One of the clearest memories I have, though, of my childhood comes from a Memorial Day parade. I guess I was six or seven years old. Me and my brother Lonnie had gone walking with dad downtown to see the parade. And I was standing there next to dad. And all the parade was passing by. And then I remember the color guard in front of the World War II veterans passed by us. And I happened just to look up at Dad. And there in that crowd where all the men were wearing their hats, I noticed something. My dad had taken his hat off and he had put it over his heart. And there were tears coming down his eyes. See, Dad remembered. Dad was in the ready reserve, as it was called, for 11 months of service during the Depression. He went in in uh, January of 1941. He got out a few days before Thanksgiving. He was out two weeks, and then there was the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And immediately he was called to active service. And because of his training, his, he and his division were some of the first to go to the Pacific. And because Dad was a rifleman in the infantry, he served on the front lines, and dad was overseas until November of 1945. He saw many, many friends killed, many, many friends maimed, he himself wounded twice. And my dad who did not talk a lot about it when I was small, my dad was forever changed by that experience of serving in combat in World War II. I think next to his salvation in Jesus, which took place when he was in, I would say, his early 50s, next to his salvation in Jesus, the most impactful experience of his life was serving in the Second World War. It really shaped, in so many ways, who he was.
He was shaped constantly by the memory of the sacrifice of his friends and the suffering of so many in the service. I tell you, the flag meant something to my dad. He was changed by the war. His thinking was changed. It changed his life forever. And friends, likewise, what I want us to understand this Memorial Day weekend is that our present and our future is really defined by how we remember. By the impact of what we remember. Now, I know this is true for us as believers because it's exactly what the Apostle Paul is calling us to do in Romans chapter 12, these first verses. He's calling us to remember, to remember, so that we will do our service in the right way with the right thinking now in the present and also in the future that God gives us. But we cannot serve the way we should in the present and we will not serve the way we should in the future if we do not remember, if our thinking is not changed by a reality of an experience that we have had with the living God through Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says in verses 1 and 2. We looked at that last week. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. What's the mercies of God? That's chapters 1 through 11. What God has done for us in Christ. His incredible mercy in calling us to salvation. He said, I am pleading with you, brothers, to remember the mercies of God so that right now you will present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, your logical act of worship service is the idea. Because you remember this, stop being conformed to this world, but be being transformed by the renewal of your mind. There's the key phrase. It's not just remembering the past of Jesus. It's the present reality of Jesus, right? That brings the renewal of your mind so that by testing you may be able to discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul says remember the mercies of God and be renewed by this memory in your thinking, by the reality of what has happened that is impacting your mind today, be renewed in your thinking. 
And that's what I'd like us to look to understand for a few moments in this passage. Paul says we need renewed thinking. Renewed thinking. Verses 3 through 8 is about that. What does it mean to have renewed thinking? What does a renewed mind do? What will, what will be the outworking of having a renewed mind through Christ? Well, there's three areas of life that Paul mentions that will be impacted by having a renewed mind. We'll look at those this morning. We'll have renewed thinking, first of all, about our identity, who we are. We'll have renewed thinking about our family, our spiritual family. And we'll have renewed thinking about our ministry. Renewed thinking about our identity, renewed thinking about our family, and renewed thinking about our ministry. Now notice what Paul says here about a renewed mind and how that should renew our thinking about our identity. Renewed thinking about who we are. Verse 3 says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned him. About 450 years before Christ, there was a famous Greek philosopher by the name of Socrates. And he is famous for a two-word expression. What was that? What is that today? Know thyself. Know thyself. Now, Socrates was not a believer, but his statement is so biblical. Sometimes... The Lord speaks truth even out of the mouth of someone who doesn't know the truth. Of all the things a believer needs to know, apart from knowing God, is to know himself or herself. Let me say that again. The most important thing that a believer needs to know, apart from knowing God himself, is to know yourself. To have the right kind of knowledge of yourself. And that's Paul's point here. He says, to serve God, you must know yourself. He's talking about, with this renewed mind, serving God. And to serve God, you must know yourself. You must think correctly about yourself. I said it last Sunday, I'll say it this Sunday. I've said it many Sundays. If I live, I'll say it many more Sundays. Why? Because I like saying it. You may not be what you think you are, but what you think you are. You may not be what you think you are, but I will assure you what you think is what you are. Because as a person thinks in his heart, that's what he is. So how we think about ourselves 
will determine how we live our lives. Now, what does Paul say about correct thinking about ourselves? He says there is a kind of thinking about ourselves that we're to reject, and there's a kind of thinking about ourselves that we are to accept. What kind of thinking are we to reject? Well, listen to Paul. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. I think this is pretty, pretty clear in the word that Paul actually used. And we believe Paul made up a word. He does it all the time. Paul couldn't find the right word. He just make it up. Why could he do that? Because he's Paul. That's why. He says, literally, do not be super thinking about yourself. The word is huperphronane. Don't be super thinking. How typical this is in our world today. You know, everything in our advertising today is about what? Self. You really need this. You really deserve this. Everybody else has got one. You mean you don't have one? Do this for you. Now there's no place for truth. Why? Because you have your truth. I have my truth, and then everywhere there's a truth, truth. <laughs> Super thinking. He says, don't think like that. And sadly for us as Christians, apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, our flesh likes to think quite highly of ourselves. I read about a man, a believer, Every time someone would say, how are you doing? He'd say, oh, pray for me that I might be nothing. Someone else, how are you doing today? Oh, pray for me, brother, that I might be nothing. Pray for me that I might be nothing. Finally, one of his brothers got fed up with it. And he asked the man, how are you? How are you? He said, oh, pray for me that I might be nothing. And this friend said, you are nothing, brother. Take it by faith. <laughs> Stand in that. The great preacher Spurgeon said, good men know themselves too well to chant their own praises. Good men and women know themselves too well to chant their own praises. Pride is always terrible, but it's most terrible in the mind of a Christian. What do we have that was not given to us? What do we have as Christians that is what we deserve? All we have is by God's gracious, merciful kind hand, right? Therefore, a Christian is not to, by the grace of God, that renewed mind to indulge in this terrible sin of 
thinking more highly of ourselves than we are. And yet there is, Paul says, a right kind of thinking we must accept. He says there's a wrong kind of thinking you must reject. Don't be super-minded. <laughs> Don't think because you've been to the movies, you've got superpowers. Don't think that way. But there's a right kind of thinking to accept. And there are just as many Christians who need to learn to accept this right kind of thinking about themselves. What is it? Look at verse 3. But to think about yourself with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So what's Paul say here? He says, don't be super-minded, reject that, but accept this, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. It means to have a sound judgment about yourself. A careful evaluation about yourself. And this evaluation is to be based on what? <laughs> what others say about you? <laughs> is it to be based on what you tell yourself constantly looking in the mirror, maybe singing how great thou art? <laughs> no, what's this evaluation to be based on? He said it's to be based on accordance with the measure of faith the Lord has given. Do you see that? It's in accordance with the measure of faith the Lord has given. What does that mean? It means we are to think about ourselves in agreement with... What God has said about us and what God has given us. What does it mean to think sober-mindedly about yourself? It means to agree with what God says about you and to agree with what God has clearly given you. Now, how does that, how does that work out? Well, there's two keys to this. I think to have a sober-minded attitude about ourselves is to hold on to these two truths. Number one, listen careful, carefully. <laughs> I went to college, <laughs> all right. Listen carefully to what the Lord says. We are precious to Him. Do you believe that? We are precious to Him. Some believers just continually want to say, I am worthless. I have no value. I am nothing. I have nothing to offer. And they think that is humility. When it really is not. It's really pride-filled fear. Now how can I say that? Because God says it's not true. God says, you're precious to him. 
You're his child. You're his friend. He is going to share his kingdom with you forever. Stop trash talking yourself. That is a tool of the devil. When you keep telling God how wrong he is to love you, then listen to this. One of you's wrong. Either God's wrong or you're wrong. I wonder who's wrong. Listen, Satan will wear you out with that. You don't have to give him a stick to let him beat you with. By the grace of God, I am what I am. But if God says I'm his friend, I'm his friend. If God says that I'm precious to him, I'm precious to him. I can't brag about it, no. It is true. Yes, I was worthless. But Jesus has made me worthy through his worthiness. I had no, nothing to offer the Lord. But because Jesus offered himself for me, now I can offer my life to him. You see? Some of us are praying the devil's lies into our own heads by agreeing with the devil rather than agreeing with God. Now, if you think this is some kind of prop yourself up by talking to yourself about how good you are, you're missing the point. All I'm saying is, read this book. And everything it says is true, right? And if it's whatever God says about you is true. You say, well, I don't feel it. <laughs> well, I don't feel saved on Monday mornings. I don't get up on Monday mornings. I get resurrected every Monday morning. <laughs> Sometimes I don't even make it till Monday morning, Sunday afternoon. How do I know I'm saved? Because I feel saved? No, because the Bible tells me I am in Christ. Why can we approach the Lord in prayer? Because he invites us to come. Why does he invite us to come? Because we are his sons and daughters. What did Jesus say we should call Almighty God our Father, right? We are precious to him, number one. Praise him for that, worship him for that, but friend, stop denying it. You are bought with a price. You're precious to God. But number two, here's what balances that. We are precious to him. Secondly, we are helpless without him. We are helpless without him. We are utterly and totally dependent on the Lord. And God wants those two truths to balance us. We are precious to him. We are helpless without him, and God wants that to balance us. So here is our thinking, these two truths. Without 
Christ, without Christ, we can do nothing he commands. With Christ, we can do anything he commands. We can do all things through Christ who will strengthen us as we seek and desire to do his will. Without Christ, we can do nothing he commands. What did Jesus say? Without me, you can do what? Nothing. But with Christ, we can do anything he commands. Friends, just remember this. Listen, Jesus changes everything. It's important that we realize this is who we are. We have a right view of ourselves. Renewed thinking about our identity. What did we sing this morning? I am who you say I am. I am who you say I am. Now here's the second. Not just renewed thinking about our identity, but renewed thinking about our family. Renewed thinking about our family. Verses 4 and 5. Here's renewed thinking about our family. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same functions, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Question. How do you think about other Christians? Could be that the honest answer is, well, I don't think about them at all. And that's one of our great problems as Christians, isn't it? We don't think about each other enough. So here's better. Ask ourselves, how does God want us to think about others? How does God want us to think about others in relation Ship to ourselves. How do we relate to other people who are believers? The Lord wants us to think about this. Because when it comes to the matter of serving Him, listen carefully, we are serving Him with others. With others. Paul says, I want you to understand our unity to other believers. Our unity. He uses the illustration here, what? The illustration of unity, God uses it several times in his word, what? The human body. Jesus the head, we are members of his spiritual body. Do you see that? Verse 4, as in one body we have many members. Verse 5, so we though many are one body in Christ. I remember many years ago, I went back with Susan, and we had Ruth at that time, she was real little, went back to Finley, Ohio, where I'd served in student ministries for a number of years, and they were having the, the faculty varsity game, where they'd get the faculty, and they'd play the varsity basketball team. And so I just happened to be in town, and so they asked me to play. So I said, okay. And during that game, I broke my left elbow. 
I, I went up for a dunk and hit my elbow on the rim on the way down. <laughs> Why? Why? That's how I remember it. <laughs> Susan says, that's not how I remember it. No, what did happen is I did steal a pass, and I went up the court, and just as I got up, one of the guys tried to block me, but he mistimed it, and he just took me out, right, undercut me. I wasn't probably higher than the rim, come to think of it, but (laughs) I came down hard on that elbow. And I want to tell you, something else, very interesting I learned that night, the meaning of this passage the rest of my body felt so badly for my elbow (laughs) that the rest of my body stayed up all night to keep my elbow company (laughs) I also remember good news he said it's not broken but you've chipped it and you're going to have to have physical therapy and so I went to the doctor, I got a prescription to go to Baptist Hospital. You remember that when it was over there across the river? Physical therapy was down in the (laughs) sub-basement where you couldn't hear the screams, all right? (laughs) Yeah. You go down, 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 you come out. There's instruments of torture everywhere. And there's the sweetest ladies you ever met who will inflict great pain on you. (laughs) They found out I was a pastor. We're going, we're going for 30% today, Reverend Polson. Motion is lotion. I thought, oh, I'll give you motion. (laughs) But I tell you, I learned a lot about the interconnectedness of our body because I hurt all over. What does the Bible say? 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, what? All suffer. If one member rejoices, all rejoice. I wonder, do we do that? When you hear of someone going through a hard time. Do you enter into their suffering? Do you let them know, if you know them at all, that you're praying? When someone else rejoices, when it happens for them, but it doesn't happen for you, do you enter into their joy? You see, it's doing this that actually changes us. No one was ever changed by saying, you know, I ought to write that note. I ought to call her. I really should encourage him in that success. That doesn't change anybody. We are not changed by thinking about it. We are changed by doing it. It's not the hearer of the word. It's the doer who is what? Blessed. We need to understand our unity to other believers. We also need to understand our diversity from other believers. Chapter 4, verse, at the end of the verse says, We are all members of the same body, but all members do not have the same function. 
we must remember unity doesn't mean uniformity. I mean, why can't all believers just be perfect like us, right? Unity is not uniformity. We must accept diversity in our family. See, diversity is a mark of God's handiwork. We see diversity in all of God's creation, and that diversity is a mark of His handiwork in His creation of His family as well. Just because we are unlike each other does not give us the right to dislike each other. Because we're united. Something unites us that is much bigger than ourselves. What is that something? It is our community in Christ. We need to understand our community in Christ. When we understand our community in Christ and we express that community, it builds our unity. Verse 5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Here we have another of one of those one another's in the Bible. You ever come across many of those? There's over 70 of them in the New Testament. One another's. It refers to the fellowship that we have in Christ. The shared life. Church fellowship. True church fellowship. Some people when they hear church fellowship immediately, they just start thinking fried chicken. Church fellowship is more than that. It is a shared life. The word is koinonia. We share life together. It's a special bond that exists between Christians because we have the same Father, same Savior, same Spirit that unites us. So what does that mean that there must be? There there must be then a a team concept. In the church, there's to be a team concept. This is not a, a, a solo. This is an orchestra. Everyone playing their part. This is a team pulling together, pulling for each other. I remember... In the mid-1970s, later 1970s, as I was going to college, during the summer, I, many summers, would come home and work where my father worked for 33 years and many of my uncles and relatives worked the Chrysler factory in our hometown. Hundreds of people few thousand at one time worked there. So you could come home and work. But I, I, I noticed something. And what I noticed caused me not to be surprised when in the late 70s, Chrysler Corporation almost went bankrupt. And it wasn't because I worked for them. I want to make it clear about that. <laughs> but I noticed something. I would be there 
And you could work for 89 days because on the 90th day you'd, you'd have to, they'd have to give you union wages. They'd let you work 89 days. And here's what I noticed. The production line, the production line was all set for individuals. And so what would happen is some people would meet their production in five hours and then they would sit down and they were done for the rest of the day and no foreman or shop supervisor could do anything about it. They had got their production. Somebody like me never got production <laughs> and had no job protection either. But the, the company was turned around at that time, but there were two concessions that had to be made. Here were the two concessions. The workers made a concession that it was now would be a team concept in the plant. You would work together as a team, no more just your individual production and sit down. And the management made the concession that there would be profit sharing. That as the company earned profits, those profits would be shared with the employees. That was the two things that were instituted. Team concept and profit sharing. And then as a result, guess what? It was the team wins. We all win. We don't just wish we could work our job or had an easier job and we could get five hours and sit down. No, we're all pulling together. The team wins. Now we all win. That was powerful. Beware of no community. What does this mean? We need each other. Beware of having no community, no koinonia. Where is your community? Whether it's in a group here at the church or where you have interaction regularly with other believers in some kind of setting, you have a prayer partner or team that you share with, you get around the word, you pray for each other. Where is your community? It's interesting, the Bible never calls any Christian a saint individually. We're always called what? Saints, plural, together. Beware of having no community. And if you're not in community, my friend, ask any of us as pastors. Let us know, we will do everything to see you get connected in community. It is life-changing. But also, as you get in community, listen carefully. As you get into that koinonia, listen carefully. Beware of koinonitis. What's koinonitis? We have such good community. We enjoy such good fellowship. Our group's been together. And we've met together for 16 years. We've had a few die. No one joins. 
because we have community. I want to tell you something. Don't kid yourself. That's not New Testament community. If it's New Testament community, listen to me. There's always an empty chair. And there's always a desire to see someone else join that. Any group I've ever led to this very day, I always make sure there's at least one empty chair. And I call it the Jesus chair. Because Jesus is with us. He's in that chair. And he wants to see us put somebody else in it. And then we'll add another one. My friend, I want to tell you something. Beware of having an attitude, no vacancy. No vacancy. What an awful thing. There's always room for someone else in Christian community. Last thing I just want you to see. Renewed thinking about our ministry. Verses 6 through 8. Having gifts that differ according to grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Renewed thinking about our ministry. Being mindful that God has equipped us. He's equipped us. He's equipped us to serve Him. How are we equipped? We are equipped with spiritual gifts. That's what Paul is listing here. He lists the Holy Spirit has given abilities. Spiritual abilities. This is the meaning. What's the meaning of our spiritual gift? A spiritual gift is not a talent. A spiritual gift is not something you can take a class on and learn that. A spiritual gift is a divinely given ability for ministry. That's what a spiritual gift is. A divinely given ability for ministry. And guess what? The Bible says everybody has a spiritual gift or spiritual giftings. They're divinely given. God decides who gets these gifts. They are definitely giving. Every believer has a spiritual gifting. They are distinctly given. No Christian has all of the giftings. These are categories of giftings. Beware of what I call some people who become Zodiac Christians. <laughs> you know what that means? You know, people sometimes go to the paper and they'll read the horoscope. I call it the horoscope. Oh, I'm, here's what Gemini, this is a, for the Gemini. This is Sagittarius. Well, you know, we're converted and next thing you know, we got think, people doing something like this. Oh, you're a prophet. I can tell you're a prophet. Oh, you're an exhorter. I can tell you're an exhorter. Oh, you're a servant. Next thing you know, we're taking all these gift tests, trying to figure out what we are, forgetting that somebody created those tests and marketed those tests so Christians would buy them. 
Just saying, just let that go. That wasn't my notes, okay? <laughs> and what happens, we pigeonhole ourselves and we pigeonhole others. That's not how you approach spiritual gifts. Listen to me. The spiritual gift you have is an expression of the gift of the Holy Spirit that you have. It's the Holy Spirit working through your life. You know what I noticed up here? Here, we had trumpet this morning. We had that saxophone this morning. What, they're, they're wind instruments. The breath throwing through those crafted instruments produces a unique sound. And a beautiful sound, right? Different than if I blew through them. <laughs> That's the way we've got to think about spiritual gifts. It's the Holy Spirit working in us. And so there are these categories of giftings, these giftings, the giftings of prophecy. What's prophecy here? It's not foretelling the future. Every time it's mentioned in the New Testament under spiritual giftings, it means foretelling the truth. It's foretelling the Word of God, not foretelling the future. He says there are those who have the gift of serving. This, the word here is the same word for deacon or deaconess. It means the, the passion to help others, the passion to come along and help get things done. I think that this must be the most characteristic spiritual gift because we sure need people who want to serve. Teaching. What does teaching mean? The ability to interpret and illuminate the Word of God. You say, I, I, I wonder if I have the gift of teaching. Well, you, you grow in that gifting, but after a period of time, if you have the gift of teaching, people who listen to you have the gift of learning. If they're not learning, you don't have that gift. Okay, move on. <laughs> Please. Gift of exhortation. What's that word? The word exhortation is also a word for the Holy Spirit. The comforter who comes alongside. This is coaching qualities. The ability, not just the ability, but the, the need to come along and help people with decisions and give guidance. The word counseling is also associated here. Giving. All Christians are called to give, but some people have the compulsion of giving. They're to give with sincerity. Some people have the gift of leading, leadership. What's leadership? It means the ability to motivate others to accomplish God's work. That's what leading is. The ability to motivate others and join in yourself in accomplishing the work of God. Mercy. What is mercy? The gift of mercy is pity in action. It's not just feeling. It's feeling that causes you to act. Pity in action. And you do this with cheerfulness. 
cheerfulness. <laughs> Some people who think they have the gift of mercy really just at times have a tendency to depressing others. That's not quite the idea. Mercy is to come alongside of and to encourage and you're to do it with cheerfulness. Do you see that? Cheerfulness. And the word there is actually hilarious. It doesn't mean a jokester, but a person with mercy comes along and gets next to someone encouraging their heart, taking action on their behalf. How do you find out what your gift is? And I'm done with this. How do you find out what your gifting might be? Let me tell you, first of all, prayerful evaluation. Pray about it. If you want to know your gift, maybe you should talk to the giver. That, seems, that just seems right to me. Pray to the giver of gifts about how he might have gifted you. Faithful participation. How do you figure out how, what your gifting is? By participating. Get involved. Finding out as you serve and you are interacting with others. Where does your heart rejoice and fruit abounds from that area? I close with this. Ray Steadman, great pastor for many years. He wrote about spiritual gifts. Here's what he said. In his little book, Who Are You Anyway? said this. I am a son of God among the sons of men. I am equipped with the power of God to labor today. In the very work given me today, God will be with me, doing it through me. I am gifted with special abilities to help people in various means. And I don't have to wait until Sunday to use these gifts. I can use them anywhere. I can exercise the gift God has given me as soon as I find out what it is by taking note of my desires and by asking others what they see in me and by trying out various things I'm going to set myself to the lifelong task of keeping that gift busy <laughs> and all God's people said Amen. where does the spiritual gift come from? Listen carefully. It comes from the gift of the Spirit. How do you get the gift of the Spirit? The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the gift. And He has given us His Spirit. Friend, have you received the gift of eternal life? You see, in his gift is our gifts. And in his giving is our giving.
And that's how a renewed mind operates. Lord, thank you for these dear folks who've listened today so well as I have sought to open this passage. Lord, I pray now that nothing that you have given by your Spirit will slip away. Lord, I pray that right now you will speak by your Word. And Lord, we will hear your voice. And may we respond by faith knowing your will is good, acceptable, perfect. Help us not to fear the giver of every good and perfect gift. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen. Amen.